Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and today on the show, we have a panel of experts to walk us through the various types of document development going on at ASRM with the Practice Committee. Joining us today are Dr. Alan Penzias, Chair of the ASRM Practice Committee. Dr. Penzias is a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist at Boston IVF and an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. He specializes in all aspects of fertility care. Dr. Penzias, welcome. Thank you. We also have Dr. Sulina Kalra, Associate Professor of Clinical Obstetrics and Gynecology, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility Division at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Kalra, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. And filling out our roundtable is Dr. Zachary Knight, ASRM Practice Initiatives and Guidelines Specialist. Dr. Knight, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Hayes. Dr. Penzias, I want to kick off this discussion by asking you about the importance of the documents that are produced. What type of documents do the practice committee produce? Thanks for asking, because there are three types of documents that the practice committee produces, and I think there's some degree of confusion about what they are, because they all sound fairly similar, but there's slight differences, and we'll focus a little bit on the guidelines today. But we have guidelines which are evidence-based. A typical example would be our recent evidence-based treatment for couples with unexplained infertility, which was a guideline published in 2020. We also have committee opinions, uh, such as clinical management of mosaic results from pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy. That's a committee opinion published in 2020. And then we also have guidance documents. For example, guidance for providers uh, caring for women and men of reproductive age with possible Zika exposure. And these three types of documents function slightly differently. They're produced slightly differently. The latter two, the committee opinions and guidance documents, are produced when perhaps the literature isn't available or really doesn't uh, support doing a full guideline, or perhaps guidance documents to suggest best practices among practitioners. But today, I think we're going to really focus and drill down on the guidelines themselves, which are evidence-based systematic reviews. Now, Dr. Penzias, you are, of course, the chair of the practice committee. So I want to turn real quick just to let listeners know about the roles of our other roundtable participants today. Uh, Dr. Kalra, could you describe your role in, in the practice committee and in this document process? Oh, sure. So I am the consulting epidemiologist on the practice committee. So my role is in helping with the production of all the different kinds of documents that we put out just as a member of the practice committee. But I do focus a lot on guideline development, specifically in helping organize the literature search, creating that literature and meeting with the task forces as they evaluate the literature to make recommendations and write summaries. And then really importantly, when we all come together, kind of helping identify what we feel like the strength of the evidence is uh, to make recommendations to guide clinical practice. And Dr. Penzias, I didn't mean to to just uh, wave over you as a chair that you don't have any process in this whatsoever. If you would, uh, although we did talk about it on a previous episode, could you mention again what your role is as chair? Sure. As chair, what I'm tasked with doing is help uh, focus where the direction of the committee is going. We receive a large number of suggestions from our members, as well as from members of the committee, on the topics we want to uh, cover. We look broadly because we want to make sure that we cover all of the topics of interest and importance 
really in clinical practice, because these are documents that are not meant to be textbook chapters or theoretical uh, treatises on uh, on areas that may be fairly obscure, but really working documents to serve as the basis for our members to begin looking if they want to perform some kind of a procedure or a treatment. It's a great place to start. And my role is helping focus which priorities we set first. And I'll remind listeners that that episode with Dr. Penzias has already been posted. You can find it under uh, Practice Committee Spotlight, where we talk a little more in depth about uh, uh, his role uh, with the Practice Committee as chair. Dr. Knight, I want to turn and ask you about your role. What is your role in this whole process? Sure. So I work with the practice committee to manage the overall guideline development process, and that includes design and execute of systematic literature searches and managing the task forces, which are subsets of the practice committee. All right. Thank you. I want to stay with you, Dr. Knight, for just a moment. Could you sort of walk us through the process of task forces and their function or their role? Sure, sure. So the practice committee appoints what we call a good shepherd or a a work group chair for each guideline, kind of depending on whether it's an update or it's being created from scratch. And that task force chair is always a full member of the practice committee. And then the other members of the task force that, that actually write the document generally are not members of the practice committee. However, they have special expertise in the topic of each individual document. So it's kind of depending on what the topic is. And speaking of topic formation, Dr. Penzias, that falls into the area of document conception. Could you just discuss a little bit about what that process looks like? Sure. So when we decide upon a topic, and I'll use the example of the treatment of couples with unexplained infertility, you know, there's a lot of different directions that we could go. But what we choose to do is to look at it in a framework of, if I'm a practicing clinician and I want to be able to apply this knowledge and really distill down the current literature and use it in a practical way, how can we do that? So what the practice committee does as a group is narrows the topic down to a series of questions or a series of uh, subtopics that are going to be asked. Those then are handed over to a uh, task force, as uh, Dr. Knight uh, pointed out, which is comprised of people who are not members of the committee itself, but are led by a member of the committee. And those task force members are subject matter experts from across the uh, constituency of the ASRM and include a variety of levels of expertise and levels of experience, including a Crest Scholar. We try to get fellows in reproductive endocrine infertility involved and members of the long tenure and and short. Thank you, Dr. Penzias. Dr. Cara and Dr. Knight, it's my understanding that you work with the design and assessment of the documents. Could you speak a little bit to the audience about that? Sure. So once we identify a guideline that needs to either be updated or developed, so I should mention that we do revisit guidelines every five years to see if they need a minor overhaul or a major update, depending on what literature has evolved since the last publication. And as Dr. Penzias says, you know, he we identify what we think are clinically relevant questions to help guide practice. And the Good Shepherd, who was a member of the task force, 
who is a member of the practice committee, rather, leads a task force. So everything starts with a very methodologically strict and very uh, predetermined literature search, where initially Dr. Knight will run a query using keywords to basically capture the either updated literature or all the literature for developing a new guideline. And we go through and a pretty rigorous inclusion and exclusion uh, process where we include studies based on our criteria, you know, the evidence that is used to help guideline development is typically randomized controlled trials, systematic reviews, cohort studies that are at least intermediate quality. And we go through and actually rate the studies for inclusion or exclusion. So we make sure that we're making evidence-based decisions and meet with the task forces to help answer the questions that have been posed by the practice committee and help with the writing of those documents so we can make summaries. Is there anything in the then in the review and submission process? Because of course, a lot of people in research they want to have their things published. You know, they want to or have their publications included in other publications to build upon. Would either of you like to talk a little bit about the review and submission process? Uh, sure. So once the Good Shepherd develops the guideline with the task force the Good Shepherd actually brings it back to the practice committee. And um, it's a pretty intensive review process as a group. And Dr. Penzias is, uh, you know, he was being a little modest when he was describing his roles. I would say probably one of his biggest roles is to keep the very vocal and engaged members of the practice committee on task and help us move through these documents because they generally do generate a, a large amount of discussion where we very critically go through each paragraph of the guideline to assess what's being said, um, whether the literature supports that. So the first review process is actually the Good Shepherd bringing the task force's draft to practice committee so that we all agree on sort of what's being said and that the literature corroborates the summaries and recommendations that are being made. And then the guideline is drafted and it goes through several review processes. Dr. Knight, I don't know if you want to jump in sure. here in terms of, yeah. Sure, absolutely. So so after the, the step that Dr. Kalra just spoke about, that comes back to us and goes out for member review first, where it is, goes to every single uh, ASR member that would like to review it. Um, we take those comments, work through them, and then after that process, it goes to um, both board review and uh, CISO and CEO review as well. So there's minimum three distinct levels, really four distinct levels of review um, for each guideline document. And another comment that I'd like to make is that the, the strict methodology that we follow for guidelines, which is a little different, again, than committee opinions and guidance documents, is not just something that we came up with on our own. This really comes from a national mandate that goes back to the National Academies of Medicine, which has a trustworthy guidelines concept. And that is that you know standards should ensure that clinical practice guidelines are unbiased, scientifically valid and trustworthy, and incorporate separate grading 
of systems for characterizing the strength of the available evidence, as well as the strength of the clinical recommendations. And that's all built into the methodology that then gets reviewed in the manner that, that Dr. Knight has commented on. And then, you know, going to members, I think, is one of my favorite parts of the whole process, so that every member of the ASRM can act as a peer reviewer. Yeah, and I would just, you know, jump in as well to say that guidelines are a very iterative process. So um, from start to finish, on average, a guideline takes about 18 months to get from inception to publication. And so at each point, the practice committee actually touches it quite a bit, you know, when it's first being developed in terms of what are the questions that we should be asking, the initial draft that the Good Shepherd brings. And then also, although the Good Shepherd is the one who's primarily doing uh, actually who is doing all of those revisions, we often see it at each iterative stage. So after member review comes back to us and again, uh, after board review, as well as the CEO review. So they really evolve a lot over that period of time so that when we send it out for publication to fertility and sterility, it's had a lot of input and a lot of, uh, a lot of work has gone into crafting it. And as always, to review these practice committee documents, they can be found at www.asrm.org. We're discussing the whole process today. And Dr. Penzias, I want to start back again with you. Are there any areas or, or clearances or criteria that we should mention in closing today with uh, that, that the audience should know about that we, we haven't touched on yet? I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that our members can be proud of is that these documents, you know, do get external recognition and validation. In the past, it was the National Guidelines Clearinghouse, where these would be then uh, posted to a national website. And and currently, after that was, uh, was uh, terminated and uh, phased into another group that looks at uh, guidelines from all different uh, professional societies. So our guidelines, we are really uh, uh, very proud of the fact that we've gotten very good scores from this external agency that is uh, unbiased and grades the quality of the way that we produce the documents, the methodology, how we review the documents, how we treat the literature, how often we update the documents. And these then serve as national standards. They're posted on this other site independently with the grade of these things, where they can be looked at by other constituencies, not only our members for the purpose of being able to practice medicine, but policymakers, insurance companies, other stakeholders in the healthcare arena who can look to our guidelines and say these were published and these were produced under very strict guidelines and using methodologies that are reproducible and verifiable so that you can have a lot of faith in the fact that when these documents are published, they really stand, we stand behind them and, and they're very methodologically sound. Dr. Kalra, would you like to add anything? Sure. And I would just add to what Dr. Penzi has mentioned, another thing that we are evaluated on by this body is sort of how clear our recommendations are. And so I would say one of the things that we have kind of overhauled over the last couple of years is how we state our summary and recommendation. So I would encourage any members who haven't had a chance to look at that, to take a look at a more updated guideline. The unexplained infertility guideline is a great, was our first example of that so that we are really uh, more succinct in our language around what's recommended and what those recommendations are based on in terms of both the quality of individual papers that are informing those recommendations, as well as the overall strength of the body of evidence. So, Thank you so much. And Dr. Knight, would you like to add anything? Yeah, I would just like to add that our, our 
methodological process um, is ongoing and it's it's very in-depth, it's systematic, uh, reproducible, and we aim to have a paper trail for every single decision that is made with every single paper that is included in a document. Um, so a lot of time and energy and effort go in um, to each one of those decisions individually. Dr. Penzias, is there anything else you would like us to discuss today? The only other thing, sometimes uh, people will wonder, well, why is my paper not included in this guideline? I think that's one of the things that uh, people sometimes will say, hey, that was a great guideline that you guys produced, but how come my paper wasn't in it? And it's not because the paper may not have been really wonderfully written, crafted, and, and designed, but it may not have helped answer the question that we were asking. So I encourage anybody who's out there and doing research to do great studies, because we would love to include all sorts of great RCTs and systematic reviews and really well-designed studies. So, so members, get out there and do your stuff so that we can really help build the field and treat the patients on an evidence-based way. There is no shame in revise and resubmit. <laughs> Absolutely not. Never, 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 never. I want to thank all three of my guests today, Dr. Alan Penzias, Dr. Selena Kolra, and Dr. Zachary Knight. Uh, they are all part of the big machine that helps pump out these wonderful, wonderful documents. Thank you all so much for being able to come on the show today. Thank, thank you so you. much, Dr. Thank Hayes. you. And I am Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.